0: Uh, Dr. Steve O'Brien, he's known to many of you in the community as a practitioner, uh, internist of HIV, and now uh, Vice President of Medical Affairs at Summit Alta Bates. I don't know what other hospitals they're going to be buying, um, <laughs> who's here to talk about uh, the Affordable Care Act, its impact on um, our patients and providers um, uh, in uh, this era.
1: Great. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here uh, back in front of uh, many of my friends. and. Oh, here's the the back and forth. And I'm here today to talk about uh, something that's going to hit your pocketbook, and something that's going to hit the way we practice, and really try and talk to you about the Affordable Care Act and what we can expect. Certainly, it's not news to anybody uh, what's been coming down the road, but the way it's going to hit us and impact us, particularly over the next year, is going to be extremely important. And first of all, I want to start by saying happy Doctors' Day. Tomorrow is National Doctors' Day, and this is something that's going to have a great impact on doctors. I have, nobody's given me any money this year. I'll be in the back afterwards if somebody wants to come give me something. Uh, you'll tell me at the end whether we met our learning objectives, but here's my, the start of our questions. Generic medications are likely to be more common with which type of insurance class as we move forward? I can't do this all, all don't watch me go. don't cheat. Good, we'll see what you see at at the end. Next question. Uh, Clinics most likely to thrive with the Affordable Care Act are Ryan White clinics, uh, FQHCs, or private clinics, private doctor's office. Good, again, we'll see what you what you think at the end of the talk. Uh, We're going to talk about what the Affordable Care Act is very briefly. Many of you know, but we're going to go through some of the specifics, particularly the specifics that are going to affect the care that you're providing, the way that people are accessing care in our community. What can you as providers, what can your patients expect? Um, How will the patients access that care? And then particularly, how can we prepare? What is it we need to do for our patients, for ourselves, for our community to uh, protect uh, the, the structure that we've built? The goals of the Affordable Care Act were to expand access to care and reduce the uninsured. That's terrific. But make no mistake, this is absolutely an attempt at payment reform and innovation in the way that we deliver care. This is a care delivery restructuring as much as it is an increased access. It's implemented from 2010 to 14. Now, we're used to dealing with the Ryan White Act, those of us who've been in the HIV world for a long time. And that's all about people with HIV. but The Affordable Care Act is for everyone. And as a reminder, people with HIV are a very small portion of the overall people that are going to be affected by the Affordable Care Act. Therefore, our influence, our input is going to be much less important than when you're dealing in the world of Ryan White. Because of that, it's incumbent upon us to be advocates for and to to maintain the stuff that Julia was just talking about. The dramatic, huge changes that have occurred in the HIV in my career uh, are, are just huge and incredibly important. This is an HIV treatment expansion. That's at the core of what the Affordable Care Act is. But we need to maintain that individual benefit and that community benefit that Julio just mentioned. And as a reminder, even in this great model that we've built, only a quarter of the people are undetectable in this country in terms of treatment. So we've got a good model, as sure as heck ain't a perfect model. when we're trying to aim for um, decreasing transmission overall which is why we're not as good as they are in British Columbia. We're seeing rates of increase of HIV in certain populations. So how does the Affordable Care Act affect access to care? I'm breaking this into the before the 2010, uh, this period we're in now, this transition period 2010 to 2014, and then living in 2014. So before 2010, uh, most insurance came through employer-sponsored insurance. People had jobs. They get their insurance through their jobs. People with HIV, yes, that's the same way, too, although, of course, there was more uh, more people with HIV who were not working, so this this was less for people with HIV. You could go out and buy private insurance, but, again, big barriers to that because pre-existing conditions excluded you or the cost was so unaffordable. So what we were left with is a lot of people with HIV getting government coverage, Medicaid, Medicare, Ryan White, Medicaid, of course, in our state, Medi-Cal. Uh, that's very important for people with HIV, and it's going to be critically important as we move into health care reform. The problem with Medicaid was that you needed to be both income, you needed to be both poor, both poor, and to meet a categorical class, such as you had, you're had. you poor and you had kids, you're poor you met a certain group, and then you could get Medicaid or Medi-Cal, but that ended up excluding, excluding a lot of men, and men of course are still the largest, by far the largest, group of people affected uh, with HIV, so in our community, this was a big barrier to people getting access to insurance to get coverage. Medicare, if you're disabled, some states like California had a high-risk pool where they said, "Well, you don't qualify for Medi-Cal, but you know, gosh, it's going to be so expensive to cover you. Um, we could pay for you out of a little money. That would cover. Uh, we'd buy you private insurance out of a little pot of money. That would cover a few people, but not a lot." And then Ryan White. Ryan White was the putty that filled in all the gaps in between this model. In, in this. This is a, a sample of about 20,000 patients. It's just a cohort, uh, but this is a, what that looked like. So you'd get a lot of people with government insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, Ryan White, and fewer people with private insurance. As we move into this period that we're in now, in the first stages, in the implementation stages of health care reform, there are some states, like California, which have elected and are part of health care reform to have an 1115 waiver. An 1115 waiver allows you to expand early They say, well, hey, I got this group of uninsured people, and they're going to, in 2014, um, have Medi-Cal or Medicaid. So I want to build a program that helps start ramping up and getting those people in so it's not just a tidal wave that overflows. That's an 1115 waiver. And with that, people who are 138% of the federal poverty level or less who previously didn't qualify for Medicaid now could get Medicaid. There's a lot of things that come with that. For example, the giant transition—all of us caring for how many people here care for people with Medi-Cal or Medi—so yeah. all the people switching to Medi-Cal managed care and uh, the huge impact that's had on our practice—that's part of the 1115 waiver because it's a mandatory switch over time for most people uh, with Medicaid into managed care. Other things that came with that that waiver: some medical homes, but now that now include people with HIV. And allegedly, starting this year and next year, um, primary care providers taking care of people with HIV are going to be paid at 100% of Medicare rates for two years, although they haven't really kicked in yet. Uh, they're supposed to get a big retro check. That's a big deal. That's a big differential in payment, but again, it only lasts a couple of years. In this transitional period with Medicare, ADAP co- counts towards true out-of-pocket expense, or TROOP. That's very important. When you have Medicare as your primary insurance, you can end up in that donut hole, that weird thing that was created when they when they made that drug benefit for Medicare. And you can end up paying at least a couple thousand dollars before you got into this other category where Medicare would pay most of it. In states like ours where ADAP is relatively generous and it will pay those copays, you could never get out of that donut hole if ADAP was paying your copays. But now when ADAP pays your copays, it counts toward your true out-of-pocket expenses and you get out of that donut hole quicker. Uh, There's insurance protections that are now in place. There's no lifetime limits or rescissions of your health insurance. That's a big deal for our community, for people with HIV. There's little plans that have developed in these states, pre-existing condition uh, insurance plans, although, frankly, not very many people are using them anywhere. A very important thing, your kids up to age 26 can now be on their parents' insurance. So that's a big group of people, and that went into place right away very popular overall. And then there's some business subsidies for, for small businesses who wanted to expand. The big stuff hits next year, and that's the Medicaid expansion overall. So now it's going to be income-based only, not categorical. Up to 138% of the federal poverty level, you're going to qualify for Medicaid. Uh, the other thing about it, this new group of people who's going to get meet this category, the federal government is paying a heck of a lot more for this, and they do for traditional Medi-Cal, et cetera. Remember that Medicaid Medi-Cal is a combination federal state. Feds pay some, the state pays some, goes into the pool that pays for that insurance. The, state, the feds in this particular program, for several years, are going to pay 100% of the costs related to those patients in this expansion. And after a couple of years, they're going to pay 90%. In traditional Medicaid, the, the federal government is kicking in somewhere between 50 and 70%, depending on the state. So this is a huge increase in the amount that the federal government is is kicking in. One of the things we'll talk about in just a second is that this, this the federal governments have mandated it, and the Supreme Courts have upheld the fact that they can mandate it. However, the states can't be penalized for it. And so what's happened is that there's a lot of states uh, uh, about half the states that have said, "Well, we're not going to do this. We're not going to expand that." Yeah, Mike's raising his hand back here. In the states with a lot of mouth breathers like Mike lives in, there are there are federal there are a lot of Republican governors who said, "Well, wait a minute. We don't want to expand this because what they're worried about is that 10 percent. And that 10 percent isn't small potatoes. This we're talking about a large number of people who are going to get ins- health insurance, and they're saying, yeah, 'Yeah, you're going to pay for it now, but in a couple of years when I got to pay for it, and I'm the governor.'" Of Florida, the governor of Alabama, the governor of Texas, and I—I got to pay for this. Uh, that's going to cost us a heck of a lot of money, and I can't pay for it. Keeping in mind that those those people who are uninsured are getting their getting health care if they're getting any through the emergency rooms, which they're paying for anyway. They're basically turning down an enormous amount of federal money, which is why you're starting to see those states kind of chip away silently in the little corners. Florida kind of chipped away. Several other states in the South are having negotiations with the feds now. So I think. That part's going to cave in. The health insurance exchanges. These are a very important thing for people to understand. The health insurance exchanges, right now, if I have HIV, I go out and try to buy private insurance. Uh, it could be very expensive. They, can, some, they, they, could, they could say, no, you can't have your insurance. Uh, but now insurance will be not allowed to say, based on your pre-existing conditions, that you can't have it. But instead of me buying it as an individual now, there's going to be these pools. So I can go in into a pool, into a state pool, and that state pool is going to compete. So we're going to have the the benefit of of numbers. They're going to help us buy cheaper insurance. So that's great for patients. It's going to drive down the cost from a competitive way. It's going to drive down the cost of private insurance. So that's a huge win for patients in terms of driving down their out-of-pocket, their cost for the insurance. However, there's a bunch of glitches. If you're a provider, your provider who sees people with private insurance, and now the people who are going to be seeing you in your clinic have a much cheaper program, what impact do you think that might have on you as a provider? They're going to probably pay you less. They're going to have a lot more restrictions. They're going to have much higher co-pays on that sort of insurance. They're going to have a much more narrow network restrictions on who you can use. and you, All those rules that you're used to with these insurance plans are getting a lot more rigid, a lot more tight, a lot more restricted for these particular insurance plans. And the other thing is, if I have, I'm used, to, I work at Safeway and I have Health Net and I pay a certain price for it. And now all of a sudden, there's these insurance pools that are in buy that are buying Health Net products for a heck of a lot cheaper at Safeway. I'm going to come knocking on the door at Health Net and say, "Wait a minute, I want that. I want that price. I got this big pool." So it may drive down the overall cost, which may have a significant impact in the long term on the reimbursement in the private world. So health insurance exchanges are a very double-edged sword in terms of what they're going to do. I think it's quite unpredictable exactly everything that's going to pan out from that, but very critically important for those of us in general. This is not just the HIV. This is in the general population. There's a basic health plan in the state for people uh, who have, who make up to 200% of the federal, federal poverty level. This is mandated for all US citizens and legal residents. Legal residents, when you first come into this country, and by the way, this is not eligible for, if you're an undocumented immigrant, you are not eligible for any of this stuff. Uh, if you're a legal immigrant, you have to wait, I think it's either five or seven years. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on that. It's five or seven years before you can take advantage of these. But once that period of time, you're mandated to have insurance. And if you don't have insurance, you're going to get a tax penalty. And that tax penalty is estimated now to go to about 6 million Americans. And that tax penalty could be up to $1,200 a year. Now, that's also a glitch in the system, because if you think, well, $1,200 a year, that's $100 a month. That's a lot of money. But what does health insurance cost? It costs a heck of a lot more than $100 a month, particularly if you have a family. So there's a, certainly some portion of those people who are going to say, whatever, I'll pay that $1,200. I can't afford the, the $5,000 or the $3,000 it costs me for, my, for me and or my family to get insurance. So there is a mandate, it will have penalties. Again, that's something we're going to have to watch, how that impact has on over it. In 2014, pre-existing conditions, you're banned. You may not have pre-existing conditions for your insurance and all these small little unused uh, pre-existing condition insurance plans are going to dissolve. No annual limits. You can't say, well, you've got a plan that only goes up to a million dollars, then you're done. That goes away. Huge increases in funding for federally qualified health centers both for existing programs and to make new federally qualified health centers, and then new regulations that if you want one, a plan that qualifies to participate in these programs, you've got to meet what they call essential health benefits. And that package includes this list right here. This is the much negotiated bruised thought over list. Ambulatory, ED, hospital to point out mental health and substance abuse, very good for our patient population, behavioral health, prescription drugs, but it's not, a, it's not proscriptive in how you're going to do that prescription drug program. So there will be a lot of variability in what's, in what's offered there, rehab services down the line. So a pretty robust insurance plan that you have to have in order to participate in this. So how does that compare to what our patients have now? I have here in the middle column what's currently allowed under Ryan White, and then what's in the essential health benefits. And you can see there's a lot of coverage, HIV medicines, outpatient ambulatory care, mental health, substance abuse. But let's look at the no's. If you look over here, uh, no to medical case management, emergency financial assistance, food and nutrition, psychosocial support services, oral health, early intervention, legal services, child care, non-medical case management, housing, transportation, vision care. There's a huge list of things that are currently covered under Ryan White particularly in areas like ours that are very generous with their Ryan White, areas like San Francisco, which have had a huge amount of Ryan White compared to other places in the country that are not covered under a central health plan. Remember also that Ryan White is a provider of last resort. So if Ryan White continues to exist, and we'll talk about that in a second, it won't, to, it won't be able to compensate for some of these services unless they're just not offered by that insurance. So we are facing very significant potential changes in the, the care repertoire and the services repertoire that these patients are going to be able to access. The other thing about, uh, I remember I said that this is, this is not only a way of getting people insurance. This is about transitioning and transforming healthcare, both from a quality standpoint and from a finance standpoint. On the quality side, there are certain things that are mandated in this and certain ways that they're going to be looking at quality. Preventative services are mandated, and mandated to be covered. That's great, including now HIV screening. So that's terrific for, for our, our community. There's a lot of money going to patient-centered research, community transformation grants, big grants to San Francisco, to Oakland, to different communities to say, hey, we're about to give you a whole bunch of new insured people. Here's a big chunk of money to figure out how you as a community can figure out um, how better ways to provide that care. Get ready. That's been happening for a couple of years, and people have spent that money. It's some of the money that's going to build new hospitals, new clinics in these different areas at Highland, San Francisco General. Value-based purchasing, uh, hospital readmission reduction, hospital acquired or HACS payment reduction, that all has to do with quality issues. So right now, Medicare gives you a dollar to take care of a patient. Now they're going to give you 90 cents to take care of that patient, and that other 10 cents, They're going to give you little bits back based on your quality metrics. How did you do on CHF discharge instructions? How did you do on hospital-acquired infections? How did you do on your sepsis bundle, et cetera? And they'll give it back. Now, most people are not going to get their whole dime back. So the long and short of it is it's a good push that's going to make us focus on look at quality better. That's a positive for patients, but it's going to take some money away from hospitals. Uh, Other programs like the ACOs and the And the bundled payment pilots are just ways of looking at coordinating care better that we can talk about offline if people have questions specifically about that. And then how is it paid for? A whole bunch of new taxes, decreased reimbursement in different areas. Uh, Second from the bottom, dish payment reductions. Hospitals that have been getting big chunks of money for taking care of disproportional share, meaning I take care of more poor people, therefore give me a little extra money, federal government. That's going to be ratcheted way down. So there's big changes in in that sort of a flow. And nonetheless, this is an extremely, incredibly expensive program. 32 million people are estimated to be able to get insurance through this program by the time it's fully implemented up in about 2019. About half of those are on Medicaid. About half of that through the insurance exchange. I predict this would be a very, very expensive program. Just a quick word on what the Supreme Court, this was challenged, of course. The Supreme Court not held it. There was three questions. The individual mandate, can I, the federal government, make you buy insurance? Yes. Medicaid expansion, can I, the federal government, make you the state, offer and expand uh, Medicaid to, to more people? Yes, but I cannot use as a weapon for that that you the Medicaid money that I already give you for the, your existing patients. So that's kind of a toothless upheld. So you, they they have that mandate but they have, no, they have no way of enforcing it, so now they're back to negotiating with the states. And finally, if any little part of this gets struck down in this ruling or in next rulings, does the whole thing fall apart? No. So there's a lot of concerns. This excludes undocumented immigrants. Ryan White, what's the future? This it's the payer of last resort, and as these people who have been previously uninsured and covered by Ryan White are getting insurance, will they be able to access care through Ryan White and through these wraparound services? Will people be looking at Ryan White as a piggy bank to say, wait a minute, this program's really expensive. Do we need to be spending a billion or a few billion dollars on this program over here? Aren't those people now covered? And do we need to have this special program? Provider reimbursement rates. Hospitals are going to be hit hard. There will be hundreds of hospitals that close in this country because of this decrease, these changes in Medicare reimbursement. That may be a good thing, that may be a bad thing, but it's a thing and something that we need to think about in terms of access. People who are dependent, I run a Ryan White clinic, I get a Ryan White rate, I've negotiated that rate. Well, that's out the window when these people get Medicaid. Because you're going to get paid the Medicaid rate. California, which has the highest percentage of people in the country on Medicaid, about a quarter of the people who live in California are on Medicaid and pays dead last in their reimbursement rates in their per capita spending with Medicaid. And then cost containment is a critical focus. This is really very much about expanding care, but looking harder at how can we control costs. Control costs. Very important for us overall, we spend a lot of money, an enormous amount of money, on healthcare, care. And it doesn't cover dental or vision, which will be a problem for our patients. So let's look at some practical implications related to this. Let's take three, three patients, Larry, Moe, and Shirley, we'll call them. And let's say, again, before 2010, they're all out looking for insurance. How, what's the algorithm they would go through? The first question you would, you would ask is, do they have access to employer-funded um, or, or private insurance? If the answer is yes, they get that that way. If the answer is no, then you say, well, are, do they meet Medicaid or Medicare eligibility? Are they disabled? And before 2010, are they poor and meet a categorical condition? If yes, they'd get Medicaid or Medicare, or sometimes both. If uh, not, is there other care available, such as the state high-risk pools, or state-only funded products that was relatively small? And the rest would get Ryan White. They'd go into a Ryan White pool, be at, eligible for that. And Ryan White dollars could also be used to kind of piece together coverage, fill in the gaps from all the rest of these plans. And that's the model that we've built in this country that's gotten us to where we are in terms of our, our treatment success. Now, in this period, you can see that the thing that's expanded, if you look at the before 2010 to now, Medicaid. In the states that have elected to have this interim in slow expansion of Medicaid, this 1115 waiver, you can see that Medicaid is continuing to increase. Not only Medicaid, but Medicaid managed care. They've also added these pre-existing condition programs. Come next year, Medicaid will continue to grow. And Ryan White's is going to continue to shrink. And it's very questionable for me what exactly is going to be left and what will be allowable from Ryan White services overall. So it's a shift in how people are going to be able to access their their insurance products. So I want to just kind of take you through, as we go through it, for people who are a private patient and a private doc, a Ryan White patient and a Ryan White doc, an FQHC patient and an FQHC doc, how would some of these different things, who's a winner and losers in these? And this, I will say, very much is very subjective. You may have very different opinions, which I'm, I'm glad to entertain, but these are kind of my subjective thoughts. So more Medicaid. Who's a winner in that? Well, certainly Ryan White patients who have currently have, un, who have only Ryan White as their only option because they can't afford anything else. That means they have very limited choices. They've got to go there. That often means, doesn't always, but it often means service is not really particularly important at that Ryan White clinic because they don't have any other options. Now that person has options. They gotta, they've got to a white and blue uh, Medi-Cal card in California, and they can go to an FQHC clinic, uh, other sorts of place. They may or may not even be able to continue at that Ryan White clinic, because there are some Ryan White clinics that don't even take Medicaid. They don't have the ability to bill insurance. Uh, The FQHC physicians and the FQHCs themselves, huge win. Why? Because FQHCs make a lot of money on Medicaid and Medi-Cal. They get paid on a cost basis. Right now, I get about 25 bucks for seeing a Medi-Cal patient. The FQHC down the street can get 250 bucks for the same visit for the same patient. They're they're reimbursed on a cost basis. I don't in any way want to imply that it's easy to be an FQHC. They have an enormous number of regulations and rules and other things that they have to um, comply with. But Medi-Cal patients are a big win for FQHCs. Uh, The health insurance exchange... Well, that's a big win, hopefully, for private patients in that it's very likely to drive down the cost of private insurance. It's iffy, though, because they may also get increased copays that go along with that. We've seen a giant increase in the number of these large deductible plans. I had a patient I saw just this last week who um, works in the medical field in an HIV-related Field, he got a new insurance plan last year. I hadn't seen him for a year and a half, and I didn't see him last year because he got a new insurance plan with a $5,000 deductible, and he couldn't afford—he couldn't afford to come see me. And as a matter of fact, he had come and he had said, "Well, I'd been on Nevirapine and Truvada, and I decided last year I couldn't afford my Nevirapine, so I just stopped it, and I've just been on Truvada." Now, you know, after I uh, centered myself, you know. That's the kind of crazy stuff that can happen with the unexpected stuff that can happen with these plans, and that's not a win for anybody. He's going to do fine, but that's the things we're going to have to be really careful of. How the health insurance exchange expect each of the clinics, I think, is it, it's unknown because of the reasons that we talked about earlier. The Ryan White wraparound services, well, that's a big loss for the Ryan White providers and possibly for the Ryan White patients because it's going to hit hard on those on those uh, clinics. Now, Ryan White is up is should. It, if this is a year, it would be reauthorized, although there's not a stop in it. It can just be keep punted down the road. So they don't, the Congress does not have to take any action on it. Um, and I think that it's very likely that you know, not much is going to be done with it this year. But I think I'm watching that very closely, and I think that there's a big target on Ryan White over time. And frankly, probably rightfully so. Part of Ryan White, the idea behind it is to have access to care for people, uh, who have not had access to care, and now they're going to have other routes to access to care. A high variation in coverage, very complicated for patients, high deductible plans, way different formularies, different issues, very complicated for patients. And the complexity, very, very much a negative overall. More managed care, very important. This is going to be a big push towards medical managed care, more managed care in general options, which is hard for clinics who haven't had that process as before, Do you know how to do authorizations? Do you know how to deal with restricted formularies? It's a big learning curve. So worries include this big growth in managed care in all across the spectrum. Uh, Are your providers ready? Formulary issues. ADAP and the access, the reason you can get Atripla and Complera and all the combination pills on ADAP is that ADAPs get this giant rebate. So it's actually cheaper for them to have you take Atripla than it would be for have you take the generic components together. That's not the case with private insurance, and it's not the case with Medicaid. So it's entirely possible, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's entirely possible that some insurance plans are going to say, well, you've got to take generic 3TC. I can't afford this combination pill. And what will be the impact on that in terms of our patients? I don't know, but it's a particularly important issue. They may also, and they have the right to say, you're going to have to do this drug first. You're going to choose from these two. You can't have the whole. You can't start with rotegravir, you can start with these other ones. I just made that example up. But those are the other kind of things that can happen in these plans, particularly as they start driving down the expenses, the the reimbursement in those uh, health insurance exchange plans. A lot of authorizations. A big focus on care transitions. Care transitions mean trying to drive care to to the lowest level as We're all linked together now. This is why hospitals are acquiring all these private practices linking up together, trying to work more closely with their federally qualified health centers to hand the patients off, instead of being in a position in which we're saying, well, I'm the hospital and if I do more CAT scans, I get more money, or I do more MRIs, there's going to be a pool of money that I'm sharing with the primary provider or the FQHC it's going to be in all of our interests to focus on transitioning those patients to the lowest level of care that they appropriately and safely can be provided. Uh, And auto-assignments, patients who do not pick Where they are going to be, where they want to be in their new plan are going to be auto assigned, including auto assigned to uh, providers. Remember, most of the people in this area are not HIV experts. They can be auto assigned to people who are not HIV experts. Ryan White, we talked about will that survive? What will it look like? I think Ryan White's unlikely to survive as an undocumented immigrant vision and dental coverage only program if everything else is covered. So will we be able to advocate, should we advocate, what should be the future of that? And will the Ryan White providers survive? That's a critical issue because we've built this infrastructure of these expert providers and that have helped us get to where we are. And that's why it's very important for us to advocate to participate in order to move the, uh, help protect our patients. So finally, what should you do for clinics and hospitals? Should you become a federally qualified health center? I think it's very difficult to become an FQHC. There's lots of restrictions and requirements. And some people are trying it. There are The CARES clinic in uh, Sacramento is becoming a look-alike FQHC. Whitman-Walker became an FQHC. But that's very difficult, and not many are going to be able to do that. You can align with the federally qualified health center um, in order to manage these patients. Get some managed care experience or partner with your managed care provider. Demonst- be able to demonstrate why you're cost-effective and why people should use you. And finally, look for collaborations. I'm making a big push for benefit advocates because this is so complex. We need to increase our ability to have our patients access care. And I'm running out of my time. So I guess the final thing I would say is this is a big and important process. It's very good for patient care. It's expanding overall. But we've got a lot of work to do, not only to protect ourselves, but to look for and to guide the future of this health care into the future to protect what we've built in this country. Thank you.
0: Go back to our uh, pre-talk questions and uh, uh, was that the first question? Yeah, Uh,
1: generic medications are more likely to be uh, common with which insurance?
2: I think that's I think the answer is
1: right. It could be either two or three. That's kind of a bit of a trick question. But particularly with private insurance, so this is exactly the way I would answer this question, and not with Ryan White. One last uh, which yeah. clinics are most likely to thrive? One, two, three, four. Tell me that you love me more. sleepless long night. Sad so night. Nice that's right. I think that's right.
0: Good, okay, so we can go to some questions. Um, I'm glad that looking around the room, I can see why there wasn't a collective gasp about extra taxes for tanning salons. (laughs) Uh, Most of you are health conscious and not using them. Um, Mike, do you wanna go ahead and ask a question?
2: This is is more of a comment. Um, I've been up in D.C. several times in the last two months, and I will tell you that there's a lot of concern about Ryan White reauthorization don't worry about that. It doesn't need to be reauthorized. 90% of programs like that in the government are never reauthorized. We're used to reauthorizing because previously it had a sunset clause in it that no longer exists. So when September comes and goes and it's not reauthorized, don't don't worry about that. It's going to continue. The question is more to what Steve was saying. The question is more about uh, funding. It's all about appropriations. And, I, and I've been given a lot of assurances that the appropriations will continue into the HCA and into the, uh, into the into health care reform. Uh, they aren't going to start just slashing Ryan White. Now, three years from now, four years from now, as the dust settles, uh, there probably will be some cuts. But they don't want to disenfranchise people who have been taking care of patients for a long time.
0: Thank you. I think the next question is going to shock uh, the audience, and that is, what is 138% of the federal poverty level? Do you know what the federal poverty level is?
1: Uh, I have that in my slide. If you guys have the slide notes on there, you can see it. I forget. I don't want to quote it. It's low. It's low, but I don't want to quote a number that without being accurate. I'll look it up. I'll look it up, and I'll tell you.
0: It's incredibly low. Very low. 100%. And um, what will happen to ADAP, the AIDS Drug Assistance program for medications,
1: you think? ADAP is, ADAP is the most popular part of Ryan White, but it's a part of Ryan White, and it's going to cover less and less uh, because there's going to be these alternative coverages. So, uh, ADAP is the most expensive part of Ryan White. I expect that to shrink, and I expect that to be robbed.
0: Um, a couple decades ago, the state mandated sort of uh, unfettered access to HIV specialists. Um, and I guess the question is, do you have any prediction about where that access will be, will those regulations go away, um, or, or how, that, how will that happen?
1: So there's a, there's a law in California saying that you you as a, if I'm providing insurance, I have to have on my panel able to either be primary or as consultants an HIV expert. There are a couple other states who have that. I don't think that law is going away, but you can meet that in a lot of different ways. But that is a good protection, and that's an, another angle very important to work with your relationships with insurers.
0: This, this question is a veiled question about single payer. Uh, I'll read it to you per, and then you can answer either question. Can California move toward an improved medic, oh, Medicare, maybe not Medicare, but improved medical care I guess for all in 2017 through ACA to reduce costs, improve quality and improve access? I don't know, that's not really a single payer question. I thought it was Medicare, but it's not medical care, I guess.
1: Well, the ACOs, you know, the ACOs have not caught on fire like they expected them to. And as a matter of fact, the government's had to keep sweetening the pot. People are very worried. The differential that you get for having a very successful ACO is very slim, and your risk is relatively high because the governments are looking for it a way like, hey, if you manage this really well, we can all save money. So we'll kick most of it, and you can maybe save a little bit on the end. So we'll see how that turns out. There's a lot. There's a lot of pilots throughout. One in Northern California, Brown and Toland, is working on one. So we'll see how that works out in the long run. Right now, that's not been the most popular or highly enrolled part of the Affordable Care Act.
0: And um, have there been measurable outcomes for medical home models that how do they translate into quality of care and any disease Um, or are there such uh, models for HIV where there are already some results? So medical homes are kind of one of the buzzwords, hot things, and absolutely
1: there's a lot of focus on them. Part of what I said, remember, in the quality part is that there's these funding specifically for health outcomes research, and a goodly chunk of that is based on the outcomes related to care transitions, related to the base of the pyramid, is that medical home. So there's a lot of there is some data already, uh, and there's a lot of it more coming, and absolutely there are examples of that. Many of us think our clinics are a medical home, but there are actually uh, governed and, and regulated and, and approved medical homes for people with HIV who are gathering data on these very issues.
0: Okay, good. Well, that brings us to the end of the this um, part of the morning session. We have a 20-minute break. I'd like people to uh, – uh, I want to thank Steve O'Brien for a great uh, update on this.